This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Okay, if we can all come back to our seats, please. It is a joy to be together with you this Easter, so happy Easter. Thank you for uh, coming if you are a guest, and we appreciate you being here uh, with us today to, uh, to celebrate uh, Easter with us. Um, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Mark 15, uh, we're going to look at a passage together from Mark 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat, under the seat in front of you. You could take that out and turn to page 498, and then you'll be able to track right where we are in this, uh, in this text this morning. You'll be able to see, uh, read along with us as we read this passage. So I'm going to pray, and uh, then we will we'll jump into the, to the text this morning. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it is good and holy and righteous and true. <clears throat> we thank you that you speak to us through your word. <clears throat> we, th- <clears throat> we thank you for the message, the good news that we read in it. And we pray today that the message of good news would land on our hearts, granting us hope. Because of this glorious announcement that you are risen. I pray for every person in the room that you would personally grant hope to each. You know exactly where they are and exactly what we need. We pray that you would speak today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we live in a city that is brimming with hope live in a city that has great hope. People move to Frisco and the sort of connected communities that surround it. They move here with great aspirations uh, for their future, with real longings and desires. People move here hoping to find uh, financial prosperity. People move here hoping to find safety, that, uh, that it'd be a safe place to live and raise a family under the assumption that all these good suburban folk are decent. There is a, a hope of great education. People move here because they want their children to have a great education. They want to give them every opportunity. So people move here with a, a, a hope of opportunity uh, and, and raising their kids in a city that offers them everything. Or so the pitch goes, you can find everything here. Yet many find that when they come and when they begin to live life and taste a bit of some of those promises, that sometimes life isn't perfect. Sometimes there's still a longing in the heart that even after tasting some of those kind of aspirations of safety, security, a measure of prosperity, that there's still something missing, that they don't really, those aspirations don't really deliver what people hope for. And folks are left asking the question, is this all? I mean, there must be something more than this because I've started to get some of the things I was hoping for. And I'm still wondering, is this all there is? I read a story from Business Insider um, 
about a guy named Marcus Person. And that name may not ring a bell for you, Marcus Person, 36-year-old. He may not ring a bell for you. But if you have children, and particularly if you have boys, then you know what Marcus Person developed. He was the creator of Minecraft. Thank you. A few people know what that is. Well, really should all know because it is the second most popular selling video game of all times, of all time. And uh, it's a game where you can go online and create and, and uh, create things and investigate and all kinds of stuff. Uh, kind of hunt, hunt around, explore would I guess would be the right word, explore. So he created this. He was the president and founder. And then he sold it for two billion in his mid-30s. He might have reached a few of his aspirations in life at that moment. Following the sale, Person purchased a $70 million mansion, and he spent his days, quote, living the dream with lavish parties, high-end vacations, world travel. He made friends with famous celebrities. At the peak of his success, when those who would be looking at him from the outside would assume that he's got to be one of the happiest, most fulfilled guys on the planet because he is, after all, living the dream. He shared a couple of reflections on Twitter that showed a very different story. For instance, he tweeted, hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want I've never felt more isolated. Respect is honesty. In another tweet, he said, the problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. He got everything, and yet he was left asking the question, is this all there is? There's got to be something more. He realized his hopes, and yet... Something was missing. And I wonder today, what would you say it is that you're hoping for? What is it today that you're hoping in? What are you linking the hopes of your heart to? Easter's a time of great hope. It's a time where we talk about hope. The theme of hope is certainly connected to Easter. It's in the spring. Uh, the dead is gone and things have turned green and there's new life and uh, fresh starts and new beginnings all around us. So it's a time of certainly great hope. And the biblical story of Easter, well, it certainly is a story of hope because it offers hope in the great reversal of what appeared to be a tragic end. When Jesus died on a cross, it seemed like the end of his mission, but it was really only the beginning. It was the only the beginning of his story. The, the Bible tells us that he died for our sins and that he rose to crush the power of sin and death and that his death wasn't the end. One author said this, the message of Jesus' resurrection transforms a hopeless end, his death, a hopeless end into an endless hope. Friday is a hopeless end, but Sunday is an endless hope. On Friday, we remembered as we gathered at Good Friday service, we remembered the cross where Jesus died. And today I want to pick the story up with his burial and then his resurrection. And I want to look at three separate glimpses of hope that we see in this text. 
three glimpses of hope that we see through different people in the text. So here, listen to God's word beginning in Mark 15, 42, God's authoritative word. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. There's a story here, I believe, in in looking at this account, there are probably three different pictures I want to highlight of hope in the text. And the first one is at his burial. And this is really a picture of hope for the unlikely, for the unlikely. Jesus died on Friday. And because the Sabbath started at sundown, he had to be buried, according to Jewish law, he had to be buried before sundown on Friday. And so... uh, we see the story of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, you would expect that a family member or one of his friends or certainly one of his disciples would take down his body and bury it, but his disciples are nowhere to be found. They are, they are frightened. They are hidden away. And so we see what happens in verse 43 is that Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. So this guy is an unlikely individual to be doing this because he is a respected member of the council. What council? The council of the Sanhedrin. It's a Jewish ruling council that was, res- that was responsible for the condemnation of Jesus. They were the ones that judged him guilty of blasphemy. And so he sits on the council that judges and condemns Jesus. And yet he is the one who goes and takes courage, it says, and asks for Jesus's body. Now, why did it take courage to ask for Jesus's body to bury it? Well, a couple of reasons. He was certainly taking a risk with his own people, the the, the Sanhedrin that he 
ruled with. He's kind of outing himself as a believer, as a follower at some level of Christ. So there's a risk there. But it took more courage because of uh, going to Pilate, the Roman ruler. See, to identify, to say, I want his body and I want to bury him is identifying with Jesus, who is a condemned criminal by the Romans, who was one that they thought was bringing an insurrection as a king, the king of the Jews. And so to be identified with him could have had ramifications upon Joseph himself uh, legally to do so. And so that while we expect the disciples, they're nowhere. It's someone who sat on the council opposing him that is seeking to get his body and give him a proper burial. This is unlikely. This is surprising, shocking. The story is not really supposed to go this way. So what does Joseph do? He comes and asks Pilate for the body. Pilate wants to verify that he's dead. Pilate gets a Roman centurion who would have been expert in executions, the executioner who verifies that he is dead. It's very clear detail in the text, verified that he's dead. And so Joseph, it says, buys a shroud, a linen shroud, wraps Jesus's body, uh, takes it and puts the corpse in a tomb that had been cut out of rock and he rolled a large stone over the entrance. Now, why do you think we get all these details about Joseph? I mean, the text could have just said Jesus died. Someone took his cross down and uh, took him off the cross rather and buried him. That, that would be sufficient to get the story. But there's all this stuff about him. Well, certainly Mark wants to verify the details of the burial because without the burial, we don't have a resurrection. So it's important to see that there is a pro- that he is really dead and that he has been buried. But I think there's more than that. I think God is revealing something by showing us this unlikely person who is now a follower of Christ. The text said that he was looking for the kingdom. So, so, so amazingly, God has opened his eyes and he is identifying Jesus as the king of that kingdom he was looking for and identifying himself as a follower, burying Jesus, taking his body down and burying him. God has evidently drawn his heart to belief and This is the work of God who takes unlikely people, someone like Joseph, we would not expect in the story and and involves them in a key moment like this of the gospel story, the burial of Christ, unlikely follower of Jesus. And I just wonder, those of us gathered today, how many of us would feel like a really an unlikely follower of Jesus? Maybe you don't normally come to church and you say, I'm not, I'm not really a very likely person to be doing the Christian sort of thing. Maybe you, you wonder if God would even accept you because of your life, because of the things you're doing, because of the things you've done, because of the things you should have done that you've not done. Maybe you've opposed Jesus like Joseph likely had previously at some point on the Sanhedrin. He likely would have. Maybe you have opposed Jesus. Or or maybe you just say, you know, my lifestyle just isn't very, well, what you guys would call Christian. I mean, maybe you showed up today here at church, somebody brought you and you think, man, if people knew what I was really like, they would know how out of place it is for me to be here today. Maybe you're an addict. Maybe you've lived an immoral life. Maybe you have made a mess of all the relationships in your life. Maybe you didn't grow up in church, so this whole deal is foreign to you. 
Maybe you're an agnostic. You're not even quite sure about God. Maybe you've been irritated and opposed. Maybe you've hated Christians. Like, what am I doing this morning sitting in a room full of those people? If you think of yourself as an unlikely follower and there is a curiosity about Jesus in your heart, I want to say to you, you are in a tremendous spot in your life. I mean, if you're curious, if you're interested, if you're open, leaning towards even seeking, you're in a tremendous place. You you judge yourself unlikely, but the Bible shows time and time again that God reveals himself to the least likely people. He picks the least likely people in the stories to be about his purposes. So you're in a very good place. Keep leaning in, keep investigating, pray and ask God to reveal himself to you. God gives hope. God gives purpose to unlikely people, people that shouldn't be in the story. And he works in their lives and incorporates them into his story. The second second group of people in the story are the ladies. And this, I want to talk about hope for the marginalized hope for the marginalized. It's not a surprise to modern readers when you read the story that we just read to see how prominent women are in the account. But to the first century reader, this is startling. And this is, this is arguably scandalous that women play such a prominent role because there's a group of women that are highlighted at each stage of the story. So in verse 40 of chapter 15, I didn't read this one, but that's the crucifixion. And it says, there were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and Joseph and Salome. The point is the male disciples are nowhere to be found. And yet there are women there present at the crucifixion. Verse 47, Joseph of Arimathea puts him in the tomb, rolls a stone, stone over it. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So women are uh, witnesses to his burial. Chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go in and anoint him. And so they're going, expecting a body, thinking there's a body in the tomb. And to their surprise, they get the announcement that he's been raised from the dead and that he's not there. So at the resurrection, there are women present as well. And it's these three moments in history that the Bible says that's the history of the gospel. Gospel means good news. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, here's the good news. Here's the good news. If you you don't catch anything today, catch this. Here's the good news, Paul says, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised. And those three touch points of the gospel story, those three historical moments, the disciples are absent. And this group of women are at each of those observing, experiencing, and verifying what has happened. Now, why is that so surprising? Why is that such a big deal? Because in the first century world, women were marginalized. And arguably in sectors of our society today, women are marginalized, but nothing like they were in the first century. 
In the first century, a woman could not give testimony in a court of law because a woman was not viewed to be a credible witness. A matter had to be established by the testimony of two or three men. So women were undervalued. They were unrecognized. They had little voice. Yet God announces the greatest work in the history of the world, not to religious leaders, not to male disciples, but to those who have little voice, little prominence, little status in society. These women, they are the ones that receive the announcement of the gospel. And that's not just Mark. All the gospels tell the same story on that point, that it is ladies who are the first to hear of the resurrection and entrusted with the responsibility to go and tell the cowering disciples, the male disciples, that Jesus is alive. That, that, that gives, there's a couple things I want to say about that. First of all, it gives great credibility to this story and to this account because the early church would never have invented this detail. If you're going to write the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you would never, if you made that up, if it's not true, you would never in the first century seek to convince people by telling them women were the ones who saw this happen. Why? Because people would say, well, wait a minute, you're basing this on the initial testimony of women? Are they even a credible witness? I mean, this for the early church is a very inconvenient truth to be spreading. And so it has the ring of authenticity to it because a fictional account account would not include that. And so it's powerful that God reveals his message and gives hope to the marginalized in society. Look, look how this transpires. Uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, verse one of chapter 16, they go to the tomb expecting to find the corpse of Jesus. What are they doing? They're bringing aromatic oils and spices to anoint his body. What they're trying to do is to sort of mitigate the odor of decomposition of a corpse. And so they wake up early the first day of the week, Sunday, first day of the week. They're up early at sunrise and they are grieving. They couldn't go Saturday because they couldn't buy the goods because that was the Sabbath. So they go first thing at the first light of dawn where they can see uh, on Sunday morning they go and they're disoriented, obviously. It's on their way when they say, oh, wow. How are we going to move the stone? The stone was probably up higher and rolled down into a groove so that it would stay fixed. So probably what happened the way it happened in the tombs, they would have had to push it up, which would have been impossible for them. So they're not even thinking, how are we going to get, uh, I mean, until they're on the way, how are we going to get in? And so on the way, while they are traveling uh, there, they think of this. And when they get there, they're surprised because the stone is gone or it's rolled to the side. They go in the tomb and there is a young man dressed in white sitting where, uh, where the body had previously been. He's an angel. We don't know that just be, simply because he's wearing white. That was an indicator. That's angelic clothing. Uh, uh, but, but it's really the way we know he's an angel is because what's his mission? His mission is to announce a message from God. And so that's what he does. Look what he says in verse six. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. 
He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. For the follower of Jesus Christ, this, which we just read, is the greatest announcement in the history of the world. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything because by his resurrection, he defeats the power of death. And it is the first domino in a string of dominoes of Christ making all things new, starting with himself, his, or God, the father resurrects him, starting with his resurrection and coming back to life. And then one day we will be resurrected and Christ will usher in a new heaven and a new earth where those who know him and worship him will be for eternity. So this is a, we can't, I cannot overestimate the importance of the words. He is not here. He is risen. And that message is given to these ladies. Please understand what the text is saying. God isn't favoring the powerful. God isn't favoring leaders. God isn't favoring the respected. He comes to the unrecognized who have little voice and he gives them a voice to testify of the greatest message ever given. Go and tell his disciples this testifying, this, this um, sharing the message that he is alive and communicating that to the disciples. Can you see the grace of God in this? how God works in surprising ways. God's value system is not the same as the cultures. It's a different system. And I wonder today if you see yourself as an outsider in any way, perhaps you view yourself as in some sense, marginalized in some sense on the outside, not the inside. If that's you, this has tremendous, tremendous hope for you and for me. Maybe you feel on the outside like this story. I, I know we're, you know, uh, 2000 years later, but maybe you feel as an outsider because of your gender as a woman here today, or because of your race or ethnicity, you identify as a minority in the culture. And the perception is that the majority is, are the insiders and the minorities are the outsiders. And so you live with this sense of sort of being on the outside. Maybe it's your religious background you say, I feel like I'm on the outside because of that. Your socioeconomic status. You say, I live in this prosperous city that we talked about at the beginning of the message. I live in this prosperous city, but I'm not prosperous. My socioeconomic status makes, puts me outside the insiders who are all wealthy from your perception. That's way, it's certainly the way everything looks and this certainly is a wealthy area to be sure. Maybe it's your lack of education. You say, I feel out of place where I work, where I live. People have, they're educated and that's not really me. And you feel on the outside. Maybe it's your marital status. You say, I, I'm single and I feel on the outside. I, I'm divorced and I sort of carry around this, this shame that I'm just a divorced person that I have to introduce myself that way and you feel on the outside because of that. Maybe you have been abused and you feel on the outside because of nothing you've done, but something that's been done to you. Maybe you feel like an outsider because of your age. You're too young to be listened to or you're too old to be remembered or cared about feel like you are on the out 
outside marginalized. Maybe it's because of physical limitations. You look around and there's certain things physically that limit what you can do and you feel second, secondary, second class. You, you feel like you lack the abilities that others do. Maybe it's you have mental health struggles. So your struggles aren't physical, they're mental and you, you view yourself because of that someone who's on the outside. If you in any way see yourself as an outsider and not an insider, then this story should be eminently hopeful for you and for me. Jesus dies for the sins of the marginalized and he is raised for the marginalized. And when the marginalized repent and believe in him, they find themselves in the middle of the story called to responsible service, called to meaningful activity, called to be a bearer of the best news ever told that Jesus has died, been buried and raised from the dead. That's why Paul says later in the New Testament that the cultural sort of ins and outs, the sort of insider, outsider barriers are destroyed in the cross and resurrection of Christ. That's why he says there is neither Jew nor Gentile read outsider. Gentiles are outsiders. There's not any Jew or Gentile. To what we're reading right here today, there's neither male nor female. So there's not an inside gender and an outside gender. There is not uh, neither slave nor free. So the slave is not the person who is the outsider in that culture where slavery was common. They're not the outsider. But once you meet Christ, you are an insider because you are in his family. You are adopted as a son and daughter and you have an identity in him and you have a calling in him and you have a purpose in him and you have a hope that is in him. God specializes in taking the marginalized and bringing them into his family, giving them a new status and a new calling and responsibility in Christ to serve him and to be about his purposes. There's hope for the marginalized. And last, there is hope for the hypocrite. Hope for the hypocrite. You're thinking, good, now he's going to get all those other people, the hypocrites, the church hypocrites. I've been waiting. When are we going to address them? <laughs> Let's get the church hypocrites here. The, the angel announces some astonishing news. He says, he is risen, he is not here. And then the angel says this, go tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter that go in Galilee, he'll meet them there just as he said, is in essence what he says. Now, why does he say, and Peter? Because isn't Peter a disciple? Yes. Here's why he says Peter, because all the disciples failed miserably. They all ran when Jesus was arrested, but it's Peter who on Thursday night at the last supper, it's Peter when they're sitting around the table, you know, the last supper, you may have seen the painting, but they're sitting at the table and Jesus says, Hey, someone here is going to betray him. And then Peter boastfully, arrogantly, confidently, assuredly says in essence, everybody may fail you, Jesus. All these other guys, they may all fall away, but I will never fall away. Jesus, I am with you to the end. Which is, he doesn't say that. That'd be a twist on what Jesus says to us. But I'm with you to the end, Jesus. I am a loyal servant of the king. And Jesus very calmly says, uh, Peter, um, like in the next eight hours, you're going to deny me three times. 
And then we read the text. It's exactly what happened. The boastful falls flat on his face. He's asked, aren't you, Jesus is arrested. Aren't you with him? No, I don't know him. Aren't you with him? He curses. Can't even say what he says. It just says he curses. Can't even, not even pulpit talk. He curses when asked if he knows him. I do not know that whatever. Three times he ignores him. And then after that, he is crushed because he has said, I will follow Jesus. And he has failed miserably. So isn't it powerful that God says to this angel, hey, make sure Peter knows by name that I'm waiting for him in Galilee. Hope is waiting for Peter in Galilee. There is hope. The resurrection gives hope for followers who fail. For people who said, I believe, I want to follow, and then drift away. If that's you here today, I want to follow Christ. You said that at some point, and maybe you live for him for a while. But man, you look at your life now, and you go, man, I have drifted. This is so foreign to me. I have drifted so far away. This message is hope for you. You haven't done anything worse than Peter. For the person who has fallen away, for the person who is timid about their faith, there's hope for the person who has great intentions. I'm going to stand up for God. I'm going to live a holy life. And we fall flat on our faces. It would have been better if we never claimed. We feel like it would have been better if I never claimed to begin with to be a follower because I'm such a hypocrite. Listen, there's no Christian that doesn't have a level of hypocrisy in their life because nobody lives up to their confessed belief. Nobody does. We're all sinful. We all fall. So there's hope for hypocrites like Peter and like you and like me. I love this quote from David Garland who wrote a commentary on Mark. And he said this, the special nod to Peter hints at his full restoration, despite his extraordinary breach of faith, Jesus does not give up on his disciples. No matter how great their failure or how many their faults. Listen, if you're here today going, how great is my failure? How many are my faults? How hypocritical I've been as a follower for Jesus. This message is good news for you. The resurrected Jesus gives hope for the hypocritical. So Easter is a story of hope for the unlikely, like Joseph, for the marginalized, the outsider, like the women, for the hypocrite, like Peter. We can all find ourselves in these categories. And so we are all candidates for hope. The message of the cross and resurrection is that hope lies outside of us. The gospel story tells us we don't hope in our character. We don't hope in our position. Or as I talked about the Frisco kind of, um, you know, mentality, like talked about earlier, we don't, we don't, uh, find our hope in our achievements, in our accomplishments, in our status. We don't find hope in our religious knowledge, our consistency. Thank God we don't find hope in our consistency. Any of our good works, we don't find hope in our good works to make us right with God. Hope isn't found in us. That's the whole point of the story. Hope isn't found in what we have done. That's the good news. Hope is found in these words. He is not here. He is risen. 
The message of Jesus is not do good and you can make yourself right with God. The message of Jesus is you have not done good and he has come to make you right with God through his death and his burial and his resurrection. And if you will turn from your sin and believe that he died for you and rose to bring you new life, you will receive forgiveness of your sins and you will receive eternal life. This hope is for you. I don't care who you are, what you've done, what you've failed to do, what no one in the room knows about you that you are ashamed of and guilty for. There is hope extended to you in Jesus. This story tells it. Look at the characters of the story. These are not the upright moral people that are respected in society that have it all together. This isn't the people having it all together, showing it up on Easter and Jesus is resurrected and saying, wow, man, I am so honored to have such a cast of people as you. These are the failures, the hypocrites, the surprises. Who thought you'd be here? That's it. Those are the people that God saves. It's not the expected Through the resurrection, God has begun his work of making all things new. And he starts with the resurrection of Christ, but he makes us new people as well. And he joins us to others in the church who've experienced new life. And together he gives us a new purpose that we couldn't fulfill on our own. And that is to be a community, a people, fallen, weak, sinful, hypocritical. I hope I've made the case, but people nonetheless that are clinging on to Jesus and become a colony of heaven, a place where the spirit dwells in his people, failed and flawed though they are, who stand up and point to Christ, who point to an empty tomb and say, yes, I may be a hypocrite, but he is risen. Look to him. That's what God is doing. Believing in the resurrection gives us new life. It doesn't mean that we have no more suffering or struggles. That's a false gospel. Believe in Jesus and you will prosper and have no problems. That is not in the Bible at all. The message of the Bible is that we do suffer in this life. However, even in our suffering, there is purpose when we know Christ. dare, Dare I say there's even value in suffering. Why? Because there's no wasted moments and wasted experiences in Christ. Jesus wants to take our very suffering. Jesus is acquainted with suffering. That's the whole message of his death is he suffered in our place. And in our suffering, God works in us and through us by his spirit to make us over time more and more like Jesus to demonstrate his life through us as difficult as that is. And his resurrection gives us the sure hope that he is making all things new and one day all suffering will come to an end. There's hope in suffering because it causes us to long and await with anticipation that certain hope of when he returns, making a new heavens and a new earth, causing all things to be new. When there will be no sin, no pain, no suffering. The resurrection gives us that eternal hope that just as he was raised, so shall we be raised. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you failed to do, hope is waiting for you today. His name is Jesus and he is not dead. He is alive. He is alive. Turn and trust him today. 
which is simply saying, God, I cannot make myself right on you. I cannot gather enough hope in this world. I can't build my life on the temporal hopes of who I am and what I've accomplished and what I have. None of those hopes are enduring. There's one hope and it's you and your resurrection and what you have done for me. So I put my trust in you. I turn from my sin. I ask you to forgive me. And I give you my life. I submit to you as the benevolent, gracious, loving king of the universe. Rule over me that I might know you and walk with you and experience you forever. That is the hope of Easter that is offered to every person, regardless of anything in you. It is all based on what he has done for us. Let's pray.